Hello everyone, this is Phil. I want to jump in here before this episode about Nightmare Alley and do a little bit of housekeeping. We have a couple of things that are a little different that we have not addressed yet in season four. Uh, first of all is the episode art. If you've not noticed yet, I will not be doing individual uh, episode art this season. I'm a little bit distracted uh, and it just kind of uh, don't have the bandwidth for everything and something had to go and that's that's it. I'm going to take a look at it again next season and see if we can work it back in there. So these episodes will probably not be on YouTube and I will not have artwork for sale this season. Secondly, pertains to this particular episode about Nightmare Alley. Austin and I had a great discussion. Unfortunately, a technical issue caused by someone in this room who will remain nameless, but his initials are Phil Rude, um, set up the mic wrong. So we have uh, a little bit of an audio issue in this. This just does not sound as clean or uh, a polished such as it ever is, as our other episodes. You know, give it a shot. If if it's a little too distracting, uh, don't feel bad about, uh, about not being able to go the distance. I tried to clean it up and level it as much as I could, but, um, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I could only do so much with it. But um, I apologize for that. And uh, I've apologized profusely to my co-host. That is all on me, and I, I really dropped the ball. I hope uh, it's it's not as bad as I think it is. And I appreciate, in advance, I appreciate your understanding as you go forward. So, uh, that said, uh, Austin and I both appreciate all the support we get from you guys. And thank you for listening. And uh, enjoy the show. Thank you. Welcome to the Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. I am Phil Rude, and I am here to show you the wonders of the world. Come on in, ladies and gentlemen. Step right up and listen to us blather on about movies. And I'm Austin Rude. <laughs> I'll take your tickets, I guess. <laughs> it's only two bits per show. Hi, Aus. Hi. I'll I'll stop. I I won't keep doing this. We are actually on a movie podcast. We don't know what we do here. Every week we watch a movie. And we talk about it on some sort of microphone or something. Some sort of microphonic device. Something. Actually, this week we're just using one of those bullhorns. We're using like one of the, the megaphones. We're, we're talking uh, into a can tied to a string. That's right. We hope it ends up on iTunes. We hope somebody gets this. Yes. How you doing, Us? I'm good. All right. We've been bouncing around. Bouncing around. We have been busy. Yeah. It's weird. We've uh, come back late, our season, later than right. we anticipated. And since we've started recording, we have, for some reason, had a hard time, like, finding time for both of us to sit down and 
Well, we had like family stuff. We yep. I got sick. Uh, my parents were were visiting. Uh, you've been yep. You've been sick. It just, my voice was all. There's been a, a lot of uh, a lot of weirdness going on, but uh, hopefully, we're all done with that now, and we're on track. Do you think maybe you know some people think the play of Big Beth is cursed? Uh, I've heard think, that. Yeah. Do you think maybe the Nightmare Alley is? cursed and it's isn't there a is there a new Macbeth movie there's something related to it going. yeah i don't know if it's Macbeth itself or if it's like i know they had ophelia which is like related to the story in some way. yeah i don't i don't know much about shakespeare but um um the track yeah the tragedy of Macbeth. that's the new one with denzel washington uh joel cohen how about that? That's like coming out. Uh, it's out. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, like an Apple TV. I wonder if that is what's cursed. Like if you're in if in, in any way involved with movies. I, I guess Including so. 8 billion movie podcasts have all been cursed by, by Macbeth. By the tragedy of Macbeth. Anyway, you want to go first or you want me to go first about what we've been... What we've been consuming, what we've watched in the last week or two. Go for it, man. All right. I'm just going to throw this one straight under the bus. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. I watched it. I knew it was going to be bad. I've not heard a single good thing about it. It was really, really bad. Give it to us. It's what? it's just a, a, a terribly written movie that wants to be the Halloween reboot so, so badly. Um, it, and ends up being more like the... Second movie, Halloween Kills. Uh, no, but it's gonna go that road if they keep going. Like it, I basically I watch it late at night while I was doing some work, and I just wanted something in the background, and I was morbidly curious about how bad it was. Um, so I turned it on, and then I just ended up basically live tweeting my experience of watching the movie, and I think the 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 thing the one tweet I sent out that sums it up the best is. If Asylum Pictures made a version of the Halloween reboot, it would be the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot. They're like the company that, that does all those fake... They do the knockoff, right. like Transmorphers and um, <laughs> so the Da Vinci Experiment or something like that. Like, it's all these... Uh, but yeah, like, it, it is that. It is the Halloween reboot in that it throws out all the sequel stuff from the from after the original... Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It brings back the lone survivor, and she's an old woman now, and she's going to have her revenge on leather. It is it is beat for beat. It's it's like this um, new formula. Yes. That, okay. Yes. We we're gonna wipe the slate clean. I feel like it is very much like the 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 makers of Texas Chainsaw Massacre saw how the Halloween reboot was successful, and they said. Okay, that's what we're gonna do, and they just, just whole wholesale stole the template, and plugged a bunch of uh, uh, different a different set of characters into it, and then just hammered out the cheapest, like lamest script, um, imaginable, and that was that was, and then they got a a cast of, I think largely unknown. With like someone Elsie Fisher's in it, 
Right, from eighth grade. From eighth grade. And uh, I think she's sort of like the big, there's sort of, there is like an idea of we can get someone who's on their way up before, you know, we can still afford her. Right. Uh, uh, but, and, and it's an, it's a different kind of project. So I don't blame her for being in it. I don't blame anybody for being in it or making it. It just is sort of like a, I think the forces behind it were just way off. You know right. what I mean? It's, it's like you'd expect a Stranger Things kid in that cast. Yes. Yeah. I, I really am surprised there wasn't. I, it reminds me, I don't know if it's the same formula, but it reminds me of that Ghostbusters, uh, the afterlife. Yeah. I, I feel like once again, it's a reboot of this. Okay. We're going to do a sequel to the first movie, ignoring the other movies and kind of center it around this new generation. Right. And, and still have all the nostalgia for the original fans. Who, yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about that Ghostbusters movie. I've heard, I've heard it's decent. I've heard it's good enough, you know, and really like, uh, I, but I can't imagine a fan of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre liking this new movie and feeling like this does justice to. Like the same tone and everything. Yeah. Like it just is, um, I don't, it just reads very cheap. And the, the script is just, it's almost like they did one draft and we're like, yeah, that's good enough. We'll run with that. It really is like, it's it's just paper thin. And it's not as though the slasher movies have deep plots or anything like that. But it's just, it's really stupid. I, I wonder when they'll do like The Exorcist with this kind of Oof. generic yeah. horror movie reboot. I don't, I don't even know what that would be. But um, yeah, it does. It does kind of feel like an inevitability of that. Yeah. Um, but that's it. I mean, you can watch it in MST3K it if you want, but it's not a good movie, and your time is better spent watching other things. I think. Are Are any of like the sequels to Chainsaw Massacre good? I've never seen I've, I've any heard of that them. The I've seen really uh, like there was sort of a reboot around late 90s, early 2000s time. Uh, Matthew McConaughey was in one of those, some bigger people before they were like big, big, you know what I mean? Like you knew who they were, but they weren't like enormous the way they are now. And I've seen parts of a couple of those. Uh, They've tried to reboot it a couple of times, Um, but I don't, I don't really know. I've, I've only seen the original one a couple years ago for the first time. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't sure. And that, I think, is just a really interesting independent film. It's it's batshit crazy. And it's worth watching just to see a really sort of interesting movie that was made on the cheap. I, w- I would recommend watching the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You're, if you've not seen it, your time is much better spent watching that than watching... Than the- the the new, the new one. one. That makes sense. Absolutely. How about you? What you got this week, Oz? Uh, well, this week there was a lot going on, but I did watch. Uh, they dropped the new season of Disenchantment. Yes, I saw that. Uh, and I love this show so much. Like it is a hilarious show, but 
I just I just clicked play like on the first episode of the new season and I had no idea what was going on. I had completely forgotten that the show is so plot heavy compared to like Futurama or even the right. seasons that it's just I I didn't remember like Lucy is decapitated, like there's something about beans in hell. I'm like I don't remember what the last episode was, but I I, I, I had to go back, uh, so now I'm back on season one, and I'm just going to watch all the way through. I've been thinking about doing that as well, because I didn't even see the last season that came out. No? Uh, I think I stopped somewhere when they got out of hell, they escaped from hell. Yeah, I think that was the second. Yeah, season. and I think that's around where I left off, and it wasn't out of not liking the show. Um, but now that there's two seasons and I can kind of, you know, it's not a year or a year plus between seasons, I'm thinking of going back to the beginning and, and watching because it is a really funny and really clever, uh, show. I, I do agree with you. I, I do enjoy it. I just, for whatever reason, fell off of it. It's, it's a good show, but like it, it's made in a different way. I mm-hmm. think it's made in a different time. So like. It's very binge worthy. Like they make it so it's, it's paced differently. Yes. Yeah. Even like each episode is chapter whatever. And right. That doesn't restart at each season. Like really all of this works as one story. It's all the story of like being maturing, yeah. basically. You know, uh, but um It it is there's a character arc there. She yeah. is growing as we go. Right. So I, I think it's fun to watch, but sometimes it's like the time between the chapter updates. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You you forget what's going on, so, like, maybe it's better to just wait and then watch the whole thing together. Yeah. And you get the complete story. It's a good recommendation because, um, and there are some great characters. Like, I love the demon, uh, Lucy. Yeah. And uh, Matt Berry is on that show. Um, he's the I, boss from the yeah. IT crowd, and, uh, he's on the What We Do in the Shadows TV show. Oh, yeah, he... He's like a pig, or, uh, something, like, yes. that's just he like... like, this priest, like <laughs> pig's body. Yes, there's some really, like, just great, uh, medieval tropes, like, fantasy mm-hmm. tropes that are, uh, they put a spin on them with these great characters, and they bring these awesome character actors in to do them and i just uh, yeah there's a lot of real charm to that whole thing there's a thing here uh like the king zog uh he is without a doubt my favorite character yeah uh like he's just hilarious i almost think he's better than bender which i think a lot of people would disagree with but he like goes insane a little bit and then there's (laughs) A whole thing with an insane asylum, just right? Like brutally mistreating people. Uh, <laughs> it's it's great. Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. I I think I am. I think I'm gonna try and start that over again and get caught up and get through the new stuff. Get working. I know. I know. Got a lot of stuff to catch up on. Barry's coming back on HBO really soon. Have you watched Barry? I haven't. Oh my but god. I've heard- yeah, things. yeah. There's time to get caught up. It's a great show. Uh, but this week we watched the 2021 dramatic thriller Nightmare Alley, 
in which an ambitious carny with a knack for manipulating people teams up with a psychiatrist, with a psychiatrist who's even more dangerous than he is. This film stars Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, uh, Tony Collette, Ron Perlman, Willem Dafoe, and Richard Jenkins. This film was directed by Guillermo del Toro, who also wrote, along with Kim Morgan, and it's based on the novel by William Lindsay Gresham. Talent in a nutshell. Uh, th this, this movie is full of insane talent. Like, uh, I have written down here additional cast that I think is worth mentioning. You have David Strathern as uh, Pete, and we all know him from the Jesus Christ, it's Jason Bourne meme. <laughs> Um, he's, he's in the, uh, he's a character actor. He's been in a million things. Uh, it, he is in the Bourne movies. Uh, a couple of them, I think. Uh, Mary Steenburgen, who's great. She's the judge's wife who does the murder suicide. I, I recognize her. She's the mom on Elf is probably what you know her yes, from yes, the is. best. God, she's in so much stuff. She's all the way back into like I've, the eighties. She's yeah. great. Um, who else I got here? Mark Pavanelli. I'm sorry, my eyes are going. Mark Pavanelli plays the colonel. He's the little person in the carnival. Yeah. Um, but he was a, he's one of the elves in uh, Polar Express. He's in Boardwalk Empire. Uh, this guy is, you start going through his filmography. He's in a ton of crap too. He's just in like a ton of stuff because... He's. I feel like he's one of the little people actors who's not um, Peter Dinklage that you just see in a ton of stuff because he's a, a great character actor and right. great to plug into that. And it's not just like, here's anonymous little person that we needed for this role. It's like, here's this actor that we need to actually put some depth into this little person role. Well, I mean, like in this movie, it is a role that has to be played by a little person. Right. But it is an in-depth character. For the little bit of screen time he has, very much like in touch with like, no, give me my dignity. He's already up there right. selling himself out as a little person in a, in a freak show. Look at this small person who's a, a wrestler or something, you know, like... Uh, and he has a similar role to that in uh, Boardwalk Empire, where there's sort of like this group of little people who get hired out to be leprechauns for like uh, the St. Patrick's Day. So, and, and Just kind of demeaning. It, it's very much, there's a whole like side story in one of the early seasons about them being very torn about like, well, it's the Depression. We need work. And, you know, like, and it's just this very kind of surprising story about little people back in the day. And, and it's just sort of like, yeah, they've always been, like, treated this way. That, that and, really is such, like, a common story with people, like, with disability yeah. being, like, taken advantage of. Like, that's why that P.T. Barnum movie... Uh, the Greatest Showman. The Greatest Showman. It's such a good movie, but it's such a lie, and it hit me so much. That's uh, almost like uh, meta that way, though, because the whole P.T. Barnum everything was a lie. Right. So why wouldn't the movie about him be a lie as well? It it kind of it's like the movie is what he portrayed himself as, but wasn't really. But I think this is like one of the cool things about like watching these old tiny carnival 
things like uh, Carnival on HBO is also this way. Is that it's like, oh, here's all these people that are freaks to the outside world, and here they are in their world, and they're just regular people. Like, like there's no discrimination. There's no, you know what I mean? Like, there's acceptance within that castle. Uh, I also this week watched the old movie Freaks, which is on HBO. Right. Um, and I recommend checking that out too because that's a really interesting movie about carnival people and the weird kind of insular society and what happens when outside people come into that. Yeah. So I I haven't heard of that one. I've heard of Carousel though. Yeah, watch Freaks. It's uh, it's like an hour long. It's a and it's uh a, a Del Toro actually cited that as a huge rep, uh inspiration to him like through his whole life. Like, oh, okay. Um, I'd be curious. That it's to see it's that just a, like it's a really alone. strange movie. Yeah. Uh, but also in this movie, you have Jim Beaver, uh, who played the sheriff. You know, the first time that Stanton like hustles a guy, it's the sheriff oh, coming yeah. in. You know that guy? I know you know him from Supernatural. Really? Was he Bobby? I don't know his name. I, I, I didn't watch Supernatural. I'm connecting the dots. Yeah. He's also uh, he was the guy who was the gun dealer on uh, Breaking Bad. Uh, and he was, uh, a prospector on Deadwood, on HBO's Deadwood. Uh, McCallie, who is, he was in our first movie ever on this show. He was in Fight Club. Um. Who was he in this movie? He was the bodyguard of Richard Jenkins. Yeah. Um, uh, he's also in, uh, Mindhunter on Netflix about, the profile, the first profilers of like serial, serial killers. Killer, yeah. Yep. Uh, that guy's great. He always like plays like that tough guy. You know what yeah. I mean? And I have to shout him out because I love him a little bit more every time I see him. Tim Blake Nelson. I was so surprised to see him at the end of this movie. He's the new carnival boss. Oh, uh, that okay. that Bradley Cooper goes back to. But I love Tim Blake Nelson. And as I talked about last week, I just watched the HBO Watchmen series. And he's a big player on that. Uh, most of you probably know him as, I think he's Delmar in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He's one of the, the three convicts. And he's Buster Scruggs from The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Um, uh-huh. uh, but it, Tim Blake Nelson, he is he's great. I love that guy. Also, this movie is very new. It's been on HBO for like a month. Uh, if you haven't figured it out already, big spoiler alert. We, we're going to spoil the crap out of this movie. Yes. So, if you have not seen this, I do recommend going and watching it before you listen to us talk about this. Because we're going to break it down and tear it apart. And uh, there's a lot to talk about here. So, I don't know any way to talk about this movie without spoiling the shit out of it. I, there is not. <laughs> so, I, there's so much interest um, in uh, I recommend watching the... Uh, let's cut to the end. I do recommend watching this movie. Uh, to almost anyone so uh, please go watch this and then come back and listen to us and uh, then shout at us about what we got wrong but uh, or don't because or don't because yeah that's right Uh, I want to start with like the length of this movie because it is by definition like a slow burn I would say like it's kind of a climb or like a rise to extremes uh but it it takes a while to get there especially in the beginning and 
I think it does such a good job at tone that I didn't notice that. Uh, the first time I saw this was in theaters. So, like, I was like, oh, this movie's kind of slow, but, like, you're in a theater. Like, yeah, you're just in for the ride, so you don't really notice if it's taking an hour or three hours. Uh, so, when I watched it at home, I was, like, very aware of the time. Uh, and... I don't think that's a detriment, uh, in case that's not clear. Like, it's a, I think it's a very good thing that this movie takes its time and creates something. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think you also don't notice it because this movie does take its time getting to the end. But it's not as though this movie is slow. You know what I mean? Like, it's long. It shows you a lot of detail. It's almost two movies. It's the carnival section, and then it switches to a completely different setting, a completely different look, and almost a completely different feel. From right. so when he's in the city, it's it's like the second half of that movie. Really, it's, it's yeah, a it's different movie. yeah. Uh, I think I clocked it. Uh, the he leaves the carnival at it's about an hour in. And then there's yeah. an hour and a half left of him as, you know, the, this great performer. So, but, so it's really like the the second act. Second and third act, yeah. yeah. The first act, it, it is like almost by definition, like the three, the first act is so distinct. It's like, here, we're setting everything up. We're even going to tell you what's going to happen. <laughs> You're not going to know that we're telling you, but we are going to tell you. And, and then it's just about... Okay, now they're off on their own, and we're going to watch these dominoes fall. But I don't think this movie is ever slow. This movie is always interesting. And I don't, I don't know if that is due to uh, just making great characters, or um, suspense, or if it is just as simple as Del Toro builds these visually interesting movies so you're always looking at something interesting and that sort of keeps you engaged right it's maybe slow is the wrong word then it's like full movie it is a slow burn in that it is leading up to something and it doesn't rush to get there like but it's not a boring movie i don't, no, I don't it's an atmospheric movie that's a really good word. That's a really good explanation for it because there is just a feel to this whole thing. Like, mm -hmm. it's just like you feel in it. Especially I, like the circus parts, like the carny, all of that. I love all of that yeah. stuff. Um, but yeah, you can almost, I, I think everything is laid out, uh, the atmosphere of everything, like you said, and the sort of, the world is built out to a point that you feel like you're you're in it. You can almost smell it. Right. You can, you know, like you know what, you know what a carnival smells like, and you know that like Willem Dafoe's tent smells like formaldehyde and whiskey and shit, you know, and you know that like the doctor's office smells like probably cigarette smoke and like wood polish and you know what I mean. Like, yeah. there's all of these like. Everything is so specific, and I, I think it really does help. I think this is something that Del Toro just does really well, uh, 
in general. It's in all his films. Yeah. The Shape of Water has a really distinct design to everything in it. And when you have that kind of attention to detail, you feel involved enough to to be invested in the characters and the story. I have a personal thing because uh, this was not intended to be part of the atmospheric part of the movie. Uh, but I did watch this movie in theaters when it first came out. Right. When I was in Canada. Right. So uh, this was my first time in a long time seeing snow. I was inside it was it was like actually snowing the night i went to right. see this in theaters so i entered the movie theater and you know like the second half of this movie the climax of it it all takes place in the snow and there's something that connected the feeling of those two things because when i was re-watching it i felt like the memory of cold wind and right. snow and it it really added to the movie and like the suspense of it all yeah it's uh it is taking place uh in december mm-hmm. uh right after pearl harbor um i i like that that is sort of like dropped it's like slowly dropped into the movie like the it, it's the, like a background it, it is the background and it it is like i don't know that there's any importance to it in the you know symbolically but it's just sort of like oh okay i guess that's going on here it's a subtle way to time stamp it's the movie it's never really a thing where like sometimes that's part of the backdrop of like this is highlighting these characters like moral similarities right here it's just there like think it has anything to say about I think I think the it's 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 mentioned a couple of times, and then when he's at the bus station going after uh, Rooney Mara, mm-hmm. uh, there's like a lot of men in uniform there. Like it, it is just sort of like uh, like enlistment is very high at this time. You know what I mean? Like so it's um like but that's it. Like I, I, it, I think it's Willem Dafoe says something like uh yeah oh that guy with the mustache that guy who looks like Chaplin invaded Poland. <laughs> Can you believe that? Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's just like right out, and it's it's so like oddly dropped in there. Like you have to notice it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know what it's there for. But um, yeah. That aside, it's I I think it's just a clever way of like instead of saying this film takes place in in thirty nine or right. forty one, yeah, uh, it's, just just have it there. What did you? What do you think of this movie? Before we get, I mean, we're already way ahead, but uh, just your general thoughts on this movie. You do, you do like this movie. I or are you kind of like ah, this isn't its best. It's interesting, but it's you know. Uh well, since you said it, it is not his best. Uh, I do think The Shape of Water is to. I I just love that movie, but uh, it's a great movie. Yeah, this movie. It's, it's about, like, not necessarily bad people. It's, like, going down a bad path. It's, like, sure. kind of that Walter White thing. Uh, or Phantom Thread. Same thing. I mean, where uh, we just talked about Phantom Thread, that sometimes great movies are about people that aren't very good. You know, like... The, but, the, 
Phantom Thread was more about like dysfunctional people, whereas this is more like some really well adjusted individuals. Yeah. They, no, there's <laughs> they're sick, but our main character doesn't start out that way. He's okay. Mm. Okay. We the first, first see him, him. Uh, dragging a body across the floor <laughs> and burying him in the floorboards. In the first act of this movie, <laughs> in the first act of this movie, he is shown to just be a person who has withstood a lot of things. Sure. And he seems very kind. He's so sweet to, uh, like, the girl. I don't remember her name. Um... um. Uh, just like everything about him in that beginning, and maybe it's because he's not talking for the first 30 minutes of this movie, but I find him to be charming, and I'm like, oh, I see where he's coming from. He's learning trade. Really, it just seems like he wants to find a job somewhere to fit in and just be a part of that. Um, uh, Try to make it for himself. But I don't think he's out to build this big empire the way he ends up, that ends up being his goal. But I don't think he's set out to be like that. I do think he sets out to be that way. I think he is a manipulator and uh, he's generally distrustful of people. Molly is Rooney Mara's character name, by the way. Um it's hard not to lay blame on him because he does talk to Molly about ambition. Let's go. I can, you know, I'm learning this, this thing. He's, he learns how to take advantage of people, which is something he's already kind of geared towards. Right. He knows how to, uh, manipulate people and play people to get his own way. I don't think he necessarily is a, terrible person um i think he's sort of the victim of of uh abuse growing up with his his father and it's just made him sort of a a cold not necessarily even cold i don't think it means that he doesn't care about people but i think he is trying to find an angle to give himself an advantage i think that's I think he's on the look. He's not necessarily setting out to be, you know, a mentalist, but he is looking for something that he can work to his advantage. I think I feel like he does have ambition, and that he is not above playing people to get his way. Right. He is a manipulator on some level from the very beginning. I. But then there's scenes like where Willem Dafoe explains how you get. A guy to be a geek. Yeah. Uh, and he, he's just horrified by the notion. He's like, oh, Jesus, poor, poor guy. Like, he shows, like, compassion and, like, he, he doesn't want to go that far. He doesn't want to hurt people. He just wants to not be hurt himself. Yeah, I don't think he's above compassion. I don't, I don't think he's, he's um, not caring about people to that level. I just think that he is kind of, um, he's just looking at how he can get ahead. I, I think he's looking at how he can sort of uh, get above just, you know, tearing tearing down um, carnival tents and, and being a, a general day laborer, you know. When he falls in with Xena and Pete, 
and they start to teach him how their hustle works, he's immediately like on board with that. And he's like, teach me how to do this. Right. You know, because it's something that he feels like he can apply to, I think, not to manipulate people, but also to get himself ahead. It's a trade that he can learn is sort of like how to be a better con man kind of thing. That, that makes sense. Uh, it reminds me a little of like in American Gods, uh, Wednesday and Shadow, mm-hmm. uh, they have this mentor relationship and it is kind of like a teach you how to do tricks, con man, how right. to swindle your way into this or that. Yeah, he's he's sort of showing like there's a... I don't remember if it's even in the TV show, but in the book, like, they basically, like, steal from people coming to take to pot in American Gods in in the book. Like, he shows them how to steal from people coming to make deposits at the ATM. You know, like, there's this whole big con that Neil Gaiman goes into this great detail explaining and Shadow's like, what are you doing? And it's like, no, this is how we this is how we get along in the world. And I, I feel like it is something like that, like where uh, Wednesday is a little more of like a trickster god, um, but he teaches Shadow how to manipulate people. I feel like that's that's a little bit of what's going on here. And I feel like Bradley Cooper, want, like Xena and Pete are show people. They're putting on a show. And I feel like Bradley Cooper takes that idea and I'm going to put on a show and I'm going to learn this trade. But he starts to apply it towards conning people. Like, more of a broad... He's taking it outside the theater. And that's what the whole second act of this movie is. Is him... He's built a show. A big... You know, he's he's like a celebrity. He created, like, a persona. And now he is taking it beyond the show. And he's applying it for real until he starts to believe it. Right. Like, that's... That's what this movie, I think, is about, is he manipulates everybody until he, the only person left to manipulate is himself. And he sort of, he deludes himself. Because as they showed, like, you can just, like, swindle a couple bucks here and there yeah. out of, like, people in a traveling carnival. And that, that like, you, you aren't going higher and higher and higher. Like, they, they were content, kind of, with where they were and he he saw that and he was like i'm gonna take it further well and there isn't there's an element to it being in the carnival in that the what the people are paying for is the show it would be like today going to see david copperfield and sort of like you know he's not really a wizard you know what i mean What? but you're paying to kind of be amazed by you don't know how this trick is done or whatever i feel like there's a big element of that. And and even today, like, you can go get your cards read. You can go to a fortune teller. You can go to a psychic. it, And you can do that for fun. It doesn't necessarily, you know, like... But, but then there are the mediums that are there um, tricking people with more devious intention there. Oh, for sure. There, And that's that's what he gets to. And I feel like in the carnival setting, this is okay. And in the theaters that he's playing when he becomes a celebrity, that's okay. But when he starts to do like these private consultations with rich people, and he's like, oh, this is where the real money is. Like, 
that's that's where I feel like it starts to go off the rails, where he he's he's blatantly conning people now. Um, and that's where like Xena is telling him like, no, you don't do the the spiritual stuff. You don't do the the ghost because that becomes too real. And now you're really manipulating people's emotions. It, people are too attached. It's right. just dangerous. And, right. Yeah. And um, I I think that's just that's the really kind of fascinating part of this movie. When I watch it the second time, I realize how much stuff that is just dropped in a line like that. Like, don't do the spook show. Um, that is just foretelling exactly what's going to happen later in this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, it, it, that's like the whole first act really is like scene of this is how you get someone to become a geek. This, I, I got shut. eye. don't do that because you believe your own lie. You believe your own lie. And, all of this stuff that ends up happening, he's warned about in the beginning. And you see, um, I think the most telling part of it all is that he knows how the trick works and he falls for it. And it, it goes all the way to when when they're demonstrating how the, how the code works to him. Uh-huh. Do you remember? Yeah. The watch. When he... Yeah, he's showing him, okay, you asked the question he this says, way. He and... says, Pete, show me how this trick works. Knowing it's a trick. And Pete starts doing it. And you watch, I think Bradley Cooper, I, I question him, like, is he right for this this role? You know, like, he's too handsome to be like this, uh, this now beat up, like, like poor kid, right? But, like. He really like his performance when he starts believing it. You can see him believe it. I think Bradley Cooper's great in this. And when Pete starts doing the watch, telling him about his father's watch, you watch Bradley Cooper get sucked into this. You watch Stanton; he believes it. He knows for a fact that this is a trick, and he believes it. And so you know. I mean, it's just like it's telling you. Yeah, he's going to believe this later. And then we know what's going to happen and we get drawn in and surprised by the end result as well. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the whole thing is so meta. The, the movie lays it all out for to the point where when, when Pete dies, that whole scene is foreshadowed. Like, okay, they, they introduce with Willem Dafoe. Here are the two boxes. Okay. This box has the poison. Right. This has the alcohol. Don't do this. Yes. Okay. We're going to go send him to go get Pete alcohol. We're going to show him reaching for the boxes. Cut. We're not going to show you what. Which, which, right. But you already know. You know. Because you know how it's going to play out. And when you're right about that, you then know that all the other hints that you're picking up on throughout the movie are then going to be rewarded at the end by becoming true. Right. It it all falls into place. Everything from his his father issues, all the way to his self delusional behavior. It's all foreshadowed. He kills his father essentially. Doesn't murder him, but yeah, you know he made it. Happen. But he kills every older male that he has any sort of close relationship with after that. You know, 
and we just watch it happen. We just watch it happen over and over again. And somehow it surprises you every time, even though you know it's going to happen. It's just like him falling for the trick that he knows is a trick. And I think I think that's the brilliance of this movie. This this movie is is beyond smart in that way that it draws you in and is predictable at the same time. I I just I I, I, I because you as the viewer like we get shut eye. We believe yes, him. It gives you the thing that it's telling you it's giving you. The way it's set up, it's <laughs> yes. like. Oh no, he got sucked into this situation and he has to defend himself. But what it really is, is he got himself into that situation. Right. Knowing he would have to defend himself. And he does it every time. And you, the viewer, who know it's coming, have gotten yourself sucked into it as well. And I think um, I think that allows us to sympathize with Stanton, who keeps falling for it over and over we're doing it the same way. And I think it allows us to sort of uh, empathize with this not great character. Like, uh, even though we know he's doing bad things, the the Pete thing, they don't show you which whiskey he picked. You kind of know, but they don't say, they don't ever blatantly say it until way further in the movie. And then it's just dropped really casually. And and then it's more of a question of, did you intentionally do that? Right, and and so it's like this kind of thing that you're like, man, he basically just killed a guy to steal his notebook, you know. But you still sort of, I don't know. I'm pulling for him through this whole movie, watching him again. It's back to Phantom Thread. Why do I like these characters? Why do I like Paul Thomas Anderson characters? Why do I like Goodfellas? Why do I like mob movies about bad people? Like, because when they're done well, they show you a side of that character that still lets you see them as a person and lets you root for them. And it, it lets you see you as that character. Yes. Like, like I can see, oh, you know, there are times when I have shut eye about this. Sure. Like, I, I don't want to believe that this is whatever. And, like, you can relate to that in, you know, in a character, in a way. A lot of us are in denial of, like, uh, self-destructive behavior that yes. we may, you know what I mean? I, I, I have never murdered a carny to get my hands on his trick notebook, but I have had shut-eye in other instances. I knew I was an alcoholic far before I admitted I was an alcoholic. You know what I mean? Like, these, these yeah. things, uh, like... We, I think we can all go into our past in, in sort of find problems that we had and go, that was right in front of me the whole time. Open my third eye like that little weird fetus in the jar with the third eye in it, which is maybe the coolest prop in this movie. Like, cool <laughs> imagery, yeah. like and uh, like I love that it's, it's like almost a throwaway prop, but it is like the centerpiece symbolically of the whole movie. Yeah. Like, have the third eye open. See what's going on. This it, little it almost have its own movie poster. The... To represent <laughs> that the would movie. be great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like this little this little fetus in the jar is is what everybody should be, and nobody everybody should aspire to be this thing. Uh, but everybody just treats it like a, a, a throwaway prop. Yeah. You know, like it's it's so it's so good and so creepy. 
Let's talk about the ladies in this movie. Women. Women. Right? Danes. Uh, Lassie Luz. <laughs> oh man, you are gay. I want to talk about Tony Collette first and foremost because I love the way this movie treats her character. Is that Molly? Is that that's the uh, Zena? Uh, Zena, okay, the the the, the the right. Uh, this movie is a film noir. And it is based. This uh, is based on the book, but also based on the book is a 1947 version of. It, there's an earlier adaptation. The guy who wrote the book, uh, at least co-wrote the original movie. So I think this is not a. Um, Was it also titled Nightmare, Nightmare Alley? Nightmare Alley, yeah. Okay. Um, and I just stumbled on that on uh, IMDb when I was originally looking this one up. So Ooh. I am going to seek that one out and watch that too. Yeah. Uh, but this movie is a film noir. Um, and in the film noir genre, typically there is a femme fatale, you know, the dangerous woman. And that's usually like the first woman that the hero hooks up with. And Tony Collette is completely played like she is going to be the femme fatale of this of this movie. And actually she's kind of the most healthy relationship that Stanton has in this film. It is weird because like, she is so similar in character in like certain ways to who is the femme fatale. The, the, uh, Kate Blanchett. Uh, Right. Um, yes, there is a similarity, um, to that as well, because, uh, uh, not just the blonde, you know, but like the, the no nonsense, the sort of, um, I've got the world figured out, smart, tough, uh, very, very independent. Usually this is like the femme fatale. A lot of what today just is marketed as strong female character and yeah. she's the hero, you know, like it used to be like, no, no, the strongest one was the one who would kill the, the main character. You know what I mean? Like the one who would like turn on him. Uh, but I I think Tony Collette uh, or Zena and Stanton, that's sort of like the strongest relationship because there's no bullshit about it. They're both kind of con people. They both, hey, this is what we're getting at. You know, it's almost a a friends with benefits thing, and nobody's lying about any of that. There's just sort of a yeah, and she's teaching me how to how to do this show and. Um, and that's kind of just what it is. They're not pretending that they're in love or that they're going to get married or that there's some huge future there. You know what I mean? And even when he leaves, she's just sort of like, well, okay, uh, this sucks, but see ya. It's a very weird relationship. Like, I don't fully understand it, but like, I, I do get like, Neither of them were in this for, like, the long haul. Right. Like, this was just... She it's pushed him to be adventurous. Kind of a casual relationship. Yeah. And they are just sort of friends who also sleep together, I guess. And she warns him. Like, she is yeah. the warning that comes later on. Like, she basically... When they come to visit? 
Yeah. Yeah. She she is the opposite of the woman that takes him down. Right. She, she kind of is there. She's looking she's out for him. She's not the fame, femme fatale at all. And I just, I like that it, at the beginning, that's ex- exactly what I expected her to be. It's like, oh, here's the, here's the woman who's been around the carnival and she's cynical and she's, you know, uh, seen it all. And she's going to be the trouble. And actually, it's like, no, she's actually the one looking out for him. Now, why was she the first person he talks to in this movie? Because that can, that kind of... She is, yes. Confused me. I, I didn't even notice this the first time I watched it, but on the rewatch, I was like, he hasn't said a single word yet. Twelve minutes. He's, he's been in multiple conversations with Willem Dafoe and a few other characters... But he's just been silently looking at them the whole time. I was waiting. Okay, so what is the first word he says? And then it's just the bath scene. Yeah. He goes and asks if she has a tub. Why couldn't we have waited until it's Molly he meets? Or what? Like, I didn't understand the significance. Why wasn't it Willem Dafoe? Like, talking about... uh, Buying the radio or... or, Radio or something. Like, what... I just didn't understand why that was... I was like, this is a cool decision to wait on what his first lines are. Weird choice on what it actually was. I don't know. I don't know that it that what his first lines were had any significance or just that he was silent for so long. That was the important part. You know, He had a secret. He had killed his father and burned the house down. And, you know... He's just carrying that secret with him. That's what I took it as. I think it was less about him asking if he could take a bath and more about, yes, he's just sort of carrying his shame around with him. And he does that until uh, Willem Dafoe basically is like, nobody here cares what you did or where you come from. Like, kind of just tells him this is a place where you can start over. Yeah. Um, and, and I kind of think Willem Dafoe is grooming him to be the next geek at that point. Like, do you think, I feel like he was grooming him to take over his job. Like, like the whole, oh, you don't have to care around me. You, you don't have to pretend to care around me. Like, and letting him in on his secrets. I think that was part of like the front, because I think when it changes for him is he offers him whiskey and he's like, no, I don't, I never drink. And he's like, oh, I'm not going to be able to turn this guy. And maybe he like realizes, oh, he's smarter than I thought he, you know, like this guy's more resourceful. He, he wasn't the target that he picked. I, I think it, at the very beginning when he says, I'll buy that radio from you. And, uh, I'll give you a hot meal when we get to the next. I think that was him sort of like scouting. He's like, this guy's a drifter and a, you know, a loser. So I'm going to scout him. And I, I kind of wonder if I'm just thinking of this now, when he tells him about how he turns a geek, like later on in the movie, Mm -hmm. I wonder if part of Stanton's reaction is, Oh, he was trying to do that to me. Like I was, I was the target of the next geek. Like, oh Jesus! How and, close like, did I yeah. get? Like, yeah, and, and I, I wonder if he realizes that or not because, yeah, I don't know because he's I, he's super blindsided at the very end. 
<laughs> I don't know. I didn't clock that. Well, it looks like I'm going to have to watch this one more time. All right. Clear out three hours. Uh, that's a three hours well spent. It is. It's two and a half. It's not quite three. Um, uh, you did mention, though, uh, that this is adapted from a story from a book. A novel, and, uh, yeah. I, I didn't clock that the first time, but I did... Uh, the second time, when everyone from the first act, from the carnival, shows up in the city, and it's like the reunion kind of scene, mm-hmm. I was like, this feels weird, because we just kind of saw them. I was like, this feels like something that was written into a movie. Like, because... Maybe. They moved to this different setting, so you don't normally see the characters from the old setting. So, I don't know. It, it just stuck out to me, and I was like, oh, this feels like it was adapted from a book. And I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. This is Guillermo del Toro's movie. And then I was like, oh, actually, it's both. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that would have seemed weird to me if there wasn't a purpose to it. Like, having Xena give him the cards and be like, see, this is, this is wrong. And, ha- you know, like, that the way that whole scene plays where he draws the bad card and she's like, oh, that's upside down, it's bad, and he just flips it over. He's like, there, it's not bad anymore. It's like, I think that's there to show his denial. I can control this. And also to have her reinforce a warning of, like, don't, you know, be like this last-ditch effort. Like you said, she's looking out for him. Don't do the spook show, you know. And I think it's also like a, a good character moment of having like Ron Perlman's character come in and be like, hey, no hard feelings, you know, right. like it's it, I, th- I feel like it's just a bit of the idea of, of good character work of having like, look, this was you didn't get along with everybody, but the carnival was a family environment for you. It was probably the healthiest family environment that he's had. And it's all con men and grifters. And where he is now, that he has a exclusive relationship with Molly, but they're not doing very well. Like he's yeah. he's more off the rails there. And that he he does have this this family unit, and that sort of like reinforces the tragedy, I think. It it, it was an important scene. Like I'm glad yeah. like it wasn't cut or anything. It it was just written in a way. I was like, oh, this is a callback to people from earlier Yeah, that somehow was only... I was like, this is structured like a book. Yeah, like, I could see that in a book, like, being further spaced out. Yeah. Like, it just being padded a little bit more so that when they come back, like, you've missed them. Here it's, like, 20 minutes later. You know, and these people are back. Or I, I don't know but, what it but is. But then again, uh, it's a two-and-a-half-hour It's a two-and-a-half-hour movie. I, I think everything that's in I th- here I think it works. Needed. It does seem a little um, out of place because it's the only time we see those characters outside of the carnival. Yeah. It's just that one scene. Um, the, they're all in the hotel room and it just yeah. looks like out of place. Like oh. it, it, They do. They look like fish out of water. It's like you don't belong in this world. Like uh, Rooney Mara and Black Bradley Cooper, they've cleaned up and they're very urbane now. And here come these these hicks from the carnival, and they still look like hicks from the carnival. You know what I mean? Like, they just don't look like they belong in this setting. I think it's really 
intentional. I think it's really on purpose. Well, well, you said like he fit in with them and it was a family, but I feel like in that scene, like he was very cold to them. Like, sure. Like, oh, well, I guess we'll order food. But like, there was no real connection there. And I feel like that scene, it's kind of like, okay, he's, he's too far gone. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. He's gone past the point where he can connect to these people anymore. Like he sees his old self and that's the point where he can choose to take the warning or not. And he chose not to. He's left that behind. And Molly very clearly hasn't like she's dancing with the Colonel. She's having a good time with her old friends. You know what I mean? Like, and you kind of understand like Molly was in that environment far longer than he was and this is like her actual family right you know um so yeah there is like there's a real sadness to that relationship it's so sad and and when molly finally like realizes it it leaves him behind like and he's still so delusional yeah she slaps him and he what did you see they were gonna hurt us they were gonna hurt you that I manufactured where I made you when you were uncomfortable right. dress up like someone's like a, dead lover. It's, yeah, it's like, crazy. Are you hearing yourself? But he's fully delusional in that scene. Do you think that that relationship was ever solid? Or were they just using each other to lean on while they left the carnival? I don't know. I think... He genuinely loved Molly, uh, but I don't think he ever let her in. I think he, like, just admired her as this thing of what she represents of, like, carny life, of, like, hope. Like, like this little... Innocence, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so he sees that, and he wants her, but, like, he never really made an effort to connect. Like, he was not open with her about anything that's going on in this movie, and, like... It's very clear how they end up disconnected. I feel like she liked him as well, but probably was using him as like an escape. Yeah. Because I think she did want to leave the carnival. Something about her dad used to work there and was dead. Everyone kind of sees her as like, this village has raised a child. Right. She's like, I want to leave. You get like Ron Perlman is like crazy protective of her. Yeah. You know, and like they're beating the crap out yeah. of him. Like, I love Ron Perlman in this movie, by the way. Like, I just think this small part that he has, like, he really sells that idea that, like, he's this strong man and he's just so beaten up and tired and he's just been with this carnival forever. Right. Um, he looks slow and just kind of like, yeah. And he's like, my knees are shot. Take over for me. And, you know, like, I, um, but uh, in uh, I've shouted this out a couple of times. Uh, Del Toro did a interview with Mark Marin on WTF, uh-huh. and he talked a lot about this making this movie, and that he and Ron Perlman were trying to get this movie made like in the nineties. Really? Like, like is when he they found the book. Here he found the book, and him and Perlman were like buddies back then, and they were. Trying to figure out a way. So, Del Toro's been trying to make this movie for decades. Well, I'm I'm almost like, I'm glad he waited. How would this movie be without Kate Blanchett in the role that she is in? And 
I mean, everyone, of course. Oh, like, without the budget that Del Toro gets now. You know what I mean? Like, true. I mean, I've seen uh, some of his early films, and they're, they're great, and they're visionary, but he is constricted by budgets here you know what i mean yeah. like and and to just build these sets these this great art deco world and the the depression era carnival world like mm -hmm. it just looks amazing all the way through he's at the point now where he has the money he can get things done wants. yeah absolutely it, it is one of those things where it's like i'm 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 kind of the same way i'm glad it took this long and that he was able to see this through the way he originally intended. Let's talk about Lucifer. Let's talk about the devil. Because I think that is what this movie uh, very largely is is talking about. Do you think this is a fall from grace? I think that's exactly what it is. I think, um, I think Stanton, I think that's uh, foreshadowed the funhouse where he goes to find the geek at the very beginning. Uh, is made to look like hell. Like I, yeah, th that fun a, house is so cool, man. The <laughs> like, fun house was cool, and there was imagery there. But but I saw it more as like, a, oh, this is of the time they're using. Like, I disagree with you on there. Like, because what? Who's God in this scenario? Uh, every that? every. Uh, he's not the golden child that like fell. Oh, he is the golden child who fell. He fell because he became uh, blinded by his own ego and, you know, challenged every authority figure that he encountered. Like, every, like I talked about, every male authority figure is, he murders them or turns his back on them or challenges them in some way to the point where he is messing with things that he can't control and you can say that fate and the universe and all of this stuff is also in its own way god or a higher power and he's challenging that and trying to control it and that's his fall i think i think the funhouse made me think of this i don't know if that's intentional or not but him walking into hell walking into the funhouse and being like cast in shadow and all of that stuff like he's he's essentially entering this darker side he, you know even though he comes from a place where he killed his father or allowed his father to die whatever um he's he's going even darker now where he is sort of like his own ego is out of control and that was the downfall of lucifer was trying to take over heaven because his old, you know, right. but, um, also like he burns his father's house down and they keep going back to that imagery of the flames coming up from, from the floor, or sometimes it's playing in reverse and the flames are going down into the floor. It is all, I feel like there is a hell, uh, connection to that. And I feel like Stanton kind of represents the same thing as the story of Lucifer in the Bible. Interesting. I I didn't pick up on that imagery. Uh, but I, I see the connections there. Yeah, I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just something I'm filling in. I'm Well, it's there. I'm, I just focus more on the literal, like, 
this is a story about manipulation. Like, sure. Do not manipulate people. Like you lose track of. It all reads the same. Yeah. It's it's not like oh this is an extra level. It's like no, it's saying the same thing. You know, right. I just I, I found it interesting. It um, the point in the uh, of him believing his own lie, I think, is is a big deal uh, in pushing his ego. And I really I love the polygraph scene when he first meets with Richard Jenkins. And they're like, we're going to test your powers. Yeah. And he starts to beat the polygraph because he starts to believe his own lie. Well, it's, yeah, I, think, I feel like it's the thing that pushes him over the edge. That is all it is. A polygraph is just, it measures your stress levels. Right. If you think you're going to fail it, you're going to fail it. You don't believe it. But he's like, no, I'm, I've got this. What strikes me as like the scene from this movie is... Uh, when he's doing his first show in the city and, uh, well, first show that we see and, uh, the therapist is there and she challenges him, like cuts out Molly out of the, cause I just think his reaction is so interesting. He, he is like thrown off guard. It's the first time that the safety net of like, he's got this trick down with Molly. He's used to it. And then he's like unsure of himself. And then he just goes with his cold read with like his, and he believes it so much that when he's done with her, when she's given up and she's not challenging him anymore, he moves on to the next man and he starts, oh, and I see this ghost from your past. And like, yeah, it's, it's the going to that man and Molly calls him out on it. Like, why did you do that? It's just so bewildering like he's grasping for straws and she even tells him she's like you have to go it it is what like xena says about the spook show like it messes with people if you do that to them yeah like emotion on an emotional level she's like you have to go let him off the hook you have to go tell him it's fake and he can't bring himself to do it it's it's a really interesting scene because he's like i'll give him an out and then he gets right up to it and he's like he can't he can't bring himself to do it. And now that I think about it, Xena does that in the very beginning of the movie. When uh, Pete, he is like drunk and she has this show. And she, oh, your brother uh, or whatever. And then you see afterwards, the show has ended. Uh, it's like hours after it's dark. And she's still talking to this woman before sending her off and going inside and being like, oh, that poor woman. like Right. It's, she knows. it's how it first comes up that you don't do that except in a last resort kind yeah. of thing as a as almost like a, a defensive measure which uh you're right Stanton when he goes after that man is you he's on the offensive like he's he's taking it to that guy um I also love his stage voice like uh <laughs> like he has like a like a persona on stage. And he's like, yeah. uh, yes, I'm uh, sensing. It's just like this real nasally old timey voice. I think it's hilarious. I think it's just like an old timey stage voice. Um, are, are you talking the main character? Yeah. When he's like nasally. The, the, the first show they show him, he's like, he just seems like he's talking like, like real nasally. I, and like, he's putting on, he's putting on this very highfalutin voice. Yes, it, it is like a, I, a faker voice. I, I like, 
I think of like Nikola Tesla, like hmm. just maybe because the suit, like he's trying to sell sure, something yeah. and stuff, but like I don't know. It's it's a weird. It's part of the the character. He's like yeah. very clearly a character. Yeah, I don't. I'm about here. I mean the. I think I've gone through all my notes. You got anything? Anything else? I just watched the movie. Art direction. Yeah, I I, I don't know. It's I really good. I could like, sit here and go beat for beat over this entire thing, um, but really, it is just a. I think it's just a brilliant. I would put this in one of Del Toro's best movies easily. I, I don't know if it beats out Pan's Labyrinth for me because, um, God, that movie's just beautiful. But right. like the uh, Shape of Water, these like he's he's at a point where he's just making just brilliant pieces of art, right? And and and, and uh, <clears throat> sorry, but um. Yeah, this definitely right. This this movie got a hook in me, and it could just be because it's it's new to me. But um, yeah, I really I love this movie. I think it I think it is a straight up masterpiece. It it's just such a good ride to go on. Like it's a really good story, and you really have to be there for it. And <clears throat> I actually can we talk about like critical response to it because I feel like there hasn't been much. I feel like. Everyone was like, huh, like, creepy circus vibes, okay, like, I guess. Are you talking about critics or audience? I guess audience, uh, because critics, I'm sure, are like, this is good. I, I hope so. I hope they see that it's good. But, like, I, general audience, like, just people online talking about it, I haven't seen much praise for it. Well, you know, my, uh, I think... There is something, this is where curmudgeon Phil comes out. I think there's something to uh, the idea that audiences aren't going to watch a movie that isn't a franchise movie anymore. So they need to make Nightmare Alley 2. They need to make this a, a part of an expanded universe. Uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes has this at a 79%. Uh, for critics and is sixty eight percent of audience. Okay. Um, take that with a grain of salt. It's Rotten Tomatoes, and I think I think seventy nine percent is a little bit low for this. But um, it, I, I I do <clears throat> think it's just one of those things that like I I don't think this is gonna connect with people on a mass level because I think, and I kind of think that's del toro in general is it's a little dark a little yeah noir and like a little some people just don't like that vibe like they don't want to connect to that if that makes sense yeah i think that makes sense i think i think this is part of what his last movie suffered from is uh supposing it's a you know, everybody talks about Shape of Water. Oh, it's the one where the girl bangs a fish. And it's like, th- that is not what the movie it's is about. It's a mischaracterization. That is, that is a, a blatant misread of what that movie is and, and an oversimplification about one tiny uh, plot point in that film. Like, you could say that about Splash, for, uh, the Ron Howard, Tom Hanks movie from, <laughs> like, the 80s. This, and 
I think people do make a snap judgment on that. But I just, I also just see this trend happening where if something is not uh, attached to a major franchise, it doesn't get the studio push and uh, it doesn't get as long a run in theaters. And people just in general don't pay that much attention to it. I don't hate that franchise movies are out there. I hate that that's all that people will give their time to. I think there's a lot of people who just don't see anything that isn't thrown out by Disney and Warner Brothers. I, the thing is, I don't know, like, what the solution is to that. Because, like, we all gravitate towards things we're familiar with. That's why, like, if it's not a franchise, it's okay. It's uh, this director, this actor. Like, sure, we all find things, okay, this is what... We connect, and I I feel like now uh, there are a lot of movies like this that are just a one-off movie, uh, and I think they're found, but I just don't think they're found right away. I don't think there's a lot of movies that are one-offs. I, I think a lot of stuff that's getting greenlit is just franchise stuff. I think the one-offs are getting to be more and more the exception, and that's... I think the trend that it's worrying to a lot of people. Well, that is a problem. Yeah. If you go through the top 10 uh, of the box office for like the last, since like, let's say 1980, and just go through the list, what happens is uh, around like the late 90s and then increasing, you start to see uh, numbers in there. You start to see Toy Story 2, you know, right. such and such 3. And then by the time you get up to about the mid-2010s, it's everything in the top 10 is either a reboot or a sequel. Uh, it, is a, it is a franchise nostalgia grab something. And it's really it's gotten really odd to me where I think more and more original material like this, like Shape of Water, like Pan's Labyrinth. These are just sort of getting, uh, like you said, people aren't talking about this or people are writing this off. And, and it's just sort of like, I, I find that a little alarming. I'm going to cut out a bunch of this because this is just old man ranting at this point. It's, it's and it's a conversation I've had a hundred million times. But it's, uh, it's just like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like we're coming towards a pop of that bubble. I, I, I think I we have think, to, yeah. Because people have been complaining about that for years, and everyone's like, yeah, I agree. But also, I want to pick out the few franchise things that I want, and everyone picks out different things. <laughs> so, of course, what it's amounted to is, okay, we're going to make small franchises, and everyone gets a little of something on our streaming <laughs> service, and aren't you all happy? Please love and us. It's the compromise. It's the uh, design by committee. It's the, um, everybody in the office, we're ordering pizza. Okay, what's everybody want? And then you get a pizza that nobody's happy with because it, it's just been, yeah, that, like. That's it, yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, you get a bunch of small franchises that nobody likes and uh, a bunch of lackluster TV shows. And, um, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's I, a, I'm going to just throw my hands up and go, I, I don't know. I do think TV in the, like the golden age of television TV, yeah. became where the new stories came. 
And and I think now with streaming, TV and movie are becoming almost interchangeable. Like, okay, I have this story. Do I want to tell right. it all? Do I want it to be a mini series? Do I want it to be a show? Do I want what does the studio want? What are they looking for? So like, it becomes a thing where, I think it's encouraging new ways of storytelling, just in different ways. Sure, I'm just uh, yeah. I, I do want less Marvel at the box. I I am uh so over uh uh Marvel and and you know not not that it makes bad movies. I'm just I'm tired of the hype machine behind it. It's like you guys have made the same three movies twenty times. I'm I'm done being hyped about it, and I'm ready for. Uh, box office isn't super important to me because I'm still not going to theaters very much, but right. um, I'm just ready for some new stuff. I want more stuff like Nightmare Alley. I want more stuff uh, from auteur directors who are bringing a story that's important to them. That's not not name recognition of a character. It's It's an important story that I want to tell, and that's what I want from my filmmakers. All right, now that I'm done with my old man moment, thank you for indulging me. You're welcome. Uh, anyone who's still here, uh, we have a couple of shout-outs for you. Us, uh, what do you got today? Oh, yes, we do. Uh, my shout-out is a TikToker. Uh, his account, his, Kyle Na- his name, he speak words now, is Kyle Schwab. And he is a programmer, a video game designer. Uh, And I just think what he's doing on his profile is really cool. Because what he has is this, like, free, like, open source video game that he is building with people's suggestions and feedback. Anyone can go download the source material for his game and start playing it right now and it's like this tiny little like square pixely it's a like 8-bit game it looks like i'm looking at it right now but uh in the past couple weeks i've seen okay i'm adding uh boomerang to this game i'm adding uh this tool this bomb uh now there's enemies in the game uh and so you, you get like his thought process you get uh how does this work? I went through several iterations, and now this is what you can do on the game. Play how you want. Uh, and I just think it's a cool project. Yeah. Like a group project we're all working on. So It's like the GIMP. You know the GIMP? No. Uh, it's uh, like Photoshop. It's like an open source version of Photoshop. Oh, where you keep changing the picture and it gets sent off to the next person? No, it is like a piece of software. It's like a Photoshop clone, but people can add to it. They can add features to it. Filters, oh, brushes, I've never heard effects. Of that. Yeah, it's free. It's freeware. It's like Photoshop. It's just not as... It's very clunky. It's not as easy to use. But the idea behind it is it's freeware and it's open source. And if you have the ability to add maybe some preset brushes or something to this and you want to, you can download it, you can add to it, you can re-upload it, you can submit stuff to it. 
Right. And it becomes right. like this community thing. It's the Wikipedia model. Yes. So, yeah, I, I just thought that was cool to see that being done with video games. That is cool. Uh, what, what do you got to shout out? I have an author. This is Allie Welch, and uh, her Twitter handle is at Allie Welch, A-L-Y-W-E-L-C-H, and her website is AllieWelch.com. Uh, I'm shouting her out because she is in this movie. She's in Nightmare Alley. She's an extra in the bus station. Uh, the camera kind of just... It, it glides over her. So she's in there. Oh my god. Uh, you have to kind of freeze frame, but she is in there, and it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, like, that is insanely cool. Like, I would tell everybody I was in this movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, even... you, you had the chance to interview one of the stars of this movie? <laughs> no. Uh, Alexandra has a novel coming out later this spring or early summer. It is called A Better Me. Um, so keep an eye on her accounts for that. I, uh, was in a short story anthology and, um, Allie was in my group. We edited each other's stories and gave feedback and stuff like that. Uh, and she wrote a story called Alpha. It is in the Deception Writing Block Anthology. Um, and it's it's a great short story. She's really cool. She and her husband, Michael, both, I know them a little bit. And they're both writers. They're both really cool people. And uh, I just thought it was appropriate to shout out her and her upcoming novel. Uh, that is really cool. Seeing as she is uh, in one of my favorite movies of last year. Movie. Yes. So, um, there you go. Allie Welch. A-L-Y-W-E-L-C-H. Look her up. Cool stuff. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. If you enjoy our show, please leave a review on your podcatcher of choice. It helps our visibility. It helps us grow the show. That's right. Do you want to know another way to help us grow our show? Do I? You could tell a friend about us. And listen, you know, you don't have to believe that we're the best movie podcast in the world to tell people that we are the best movie podcast in the world. Because if you say it enough times, you will believe it. I believe it. Go forth. I believe it too. I believe the lie. We're the best. Yes. And that's it. Boss, you have the movie wheel next week. That's right. I'm in control of the movie theater, and... What are we watching? I'm putting on Marriage Story. Ooh, there's something uplifting. Well, you know, Adam Driver's awesome, so... He is. That's the moral of that story. Cool. Will this be our second Adam Driver movie? It would have to be more than two. I, it seems like it would be, but... I think mm. that's it. Logan Lucky. Yeah. This. I'll have to look that up before next week, but uh, I've not seen this yet. Have you? I have you watched it? I did watch this, but I got interrupted, and so it's one of those movies where oh, just like the marriage. I that's right. I stopped halfway through, uh, like paused, went meant to come back, never came back. So I have no idea how it ends. I know he punches a wall or something. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I so I, I, I want to. <laughs> I don't know. 
I I want to finish this movie. Okay. Because uh, it is a good movie. So. All right. Yeah. Cool. Uh, marriage story next week. Join us. Uh, social media. What do you got? I have a Twitter. You can find me at austin.n.rude or old2review. Old who review. I am philrude.com, at philrude on Twitter, at philrude75 on Instagram. And you can buy me a coffee. ko-fi.com slash philrude. I am slowly migrating uh, everything I have for sale over to there. There is a shop there. You can buy my uh, latest project, Mo, myself, and I. You can buy the physical book or the PDF there. And I will have original art there. And you can make uh, small donations over there. I will welcome them. Uh, it is couched in small donations, this site ko-fi.com check it out if you haven't um where it's sort of presented as buy me a coffee and i will tell you if you donate to mine there is a better than average chance that it will actually pay for coffee no but um if, if you want to that is kind of i will still have philrude.com i'm starting to move more things over there instead of launching a patreon um or keeping a, a nine other a digital store over here and a physical store over here. I'm going to try and put it all over there. So ko-fi.com slash philrude. Uh, that is where you'll be able to find everything. Ko-fi? Ko-fi or coffee. Now I lost my place. <laughs> uh, oh, that's it. Oh, so you want to read the credits? <laughs> yes. Uh, we did it all ourselves. <laughs> there you have it. We'll see you next time on The Picture Show. See ya. Hello, greetings, and good day. My name is Keith Gala, and I'm the host of That Was Great, Wasn't It? Each week, I'll be joined by my friends, both old and new, to reminisce on our youth via the nostalgic power of Saturday morning cartoons. Some will be classics, some will be classic with air quotes, but all will have us pondering the same philosophical conundrum. That was great, wasn't it? Season 1 will be breaking down Pro Stars. Pro Stars is part of NBC's 1991 Saturday morning lineup and features the all-time greats of Michael Jordan, Bo Jackson, Wayne Gretzky, doing their best to stop bad guys, inspire the youth, and protect the environment. Keep up the speed with the show by following us on Twitter and Instagram at How Great Was That. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.